welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our latest edition of Arbitral Insights, our podcast series where we focus on some of the most inspirational people in the law, and in particular, in the world of litigation and arbitration. And I am overjoyed and hugely privileged to welcome as our guest today, a true legend in the law, and that is Mr. Fali Nariman. Hello, Mr. Nariman. Uh, hello. Hello, Gautam. Great to see you again. It's great to see you, and I can't tell you how excited I am about speaking to you today. The last time I saw you was in Delhi. That's it. At the GAR conference on the 29th of February 2020, just before the pandemic shut down the world. Yes. And I feel so delighted to be seeing you today and having this conversation with you, where I'm going to ask you a number of things which go through your incredible life and career. I I remember, Mr. Nariman, when I last met you in February in Delhi last year, you were described by Dr. Ladit Basin as three things. And I still remember vividly. He said you were a great lawyer, a great human being, and a great Indian. And I don't think there's any better way to summarize you than those three words or three expressions. One of the things, I mean, you're such a, a incredible figure in the law, and we'll come to some of these things in the course of the discussion. But let us rewind things back, if we may, to what inspired you to become a lawyer in the first place. I think that would be particularly a nice place for us to begin. Yeah, certainly. Well, it was by default, really because I was pretty poor in science and mathematics was a weak point of mine. So arts was the only thing. And in arts, I I was only good in history. So (laughs) I suppose that (laughs) the obvious thing was that the poor man can't do a thing, so let him take law. (laughs) No, but that's really true. That's how it all started, quite frankly. That's how it all started. And then, of course keeps getting on and on and so on, and whatever happens is all to the best. And that's about how the careers start, actually. You can't plan anything. Father really wanted me to do the ICS, the Indian Civil Service exam in those days. But I knew that he couldn't afford it, you see. So I said, Mm. no, no, that's impossible, because it meant my coming to England and going back and giving the exam and so on. So the next best thing was try your luck in law. And fortunately, the luck worked. So (laughs) that's that's how it all started. There's there's no other way. (laughs) Well, it definitely worked. And one of the things that you've been so generous over the years in sharing your thoughts about the law, about many things, but the law and many other subjects. And But, you know, uh, you asked me as to what made me really take the law. Well, two of my excellent professors in the law college made me decide that, yes, I must try and do law first. And they were Nani Palkiwala, who was a great constitutional lawyer of our time. 
he was my professor and then he was a very dear friend as well. And the other was a former Chief Justice of India, Y.V. Chandrachud. They were both part-time professors. Part-time meaning they were lecturing in college and at the same time practicing in court. They were an inspiration. So when one got uh, attached to the law, one thought that, well, this is the thing to do. And that's one of the important things in my, my life, at least, that has been very good. And then, of course, I was very fortunate in having a fantastic senior, Sir Jamsenji Kanga. He was a giant of a man, giant both in head and heart and physically also, six foot four, all of him, and was quite remarkable. And I was very fortunate to join his chamber. It was a remarkable chamber, full of very senior people who were doing extraordinarily well. And at the same time, there would be a lull in the evenings, uh, 6.30 or 7, when everybody stopped at their conferences. And then we'd move on to the old man's uh, table and uh, he'd regale us with all the stories of the past, which was uh, such fun because... He had a great sense of, not of humor, just humor, but fun, mm -hmm. which was remarkable for us very young people at that time. Well, those qualities are all qualities that you clearly inherited because those are exactly the same characteristics which I know about you and many, many others would say about you. And But, you know, the names you mentioned there, uh, Mr. Piwala, Mr. Kanga and Chief Justice Chandrachud, you know, these were your big inspirations. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, in terms of the way they shaped your career, are there any particular sort of standout moments that you recall, in particular from any cases where they left a particular imprint in your mind? Oh, yes. Because, you see, I assisted Padkiwala as I was very young then. The famous Golaknath case, which was a big constitutional case, with the first time a bench of 11 judges set to determine under what circumstances the constitution can be amended and to what extent and could fundamental rights be taken away, etc. And that case determined something which the government would not accept. And ultimately, two, three years later, in 1973, a bench of 13 judges sat to reconsider. Wow. And by a very narrow majority of seven to six, with Justice Khanna being the moving the majority, it was decided that every article of the Constitution was amendable, save and except that you could not amend the Constitution so as to take away its basic structure. And what that basic structure meant was the judges said, well, you decide, you pass any law you like and we'll determine whether that is basic structure or it's not. That's how the law stands today and that's been accepted by all. But that was a great triumph for, an individual triumph for Palkiwala because he argued that case and he argued it extraordinarily well. Hmm. Well, you know, that theme is, uh, is a very interesting theme. If I could just pick up on that. I mentioned a bit earlier in this podcast that over the years, you've been incredibly generous with your thinking and you've written a number of books. And one particularly insightful book of yours, and I've got a few of yours, is your autobiography, Before Memory Fades. And for those of our listeners who haven't had the privilege of reading that book, I would highly commend it. And in that book, there is a chapter called Judicial Governance and Judicial Activism. 
And I feel that what you just mentioned there about judges and what they say perfectly sums up that mix of governance and activism. So I wonder where you stand with the thought that judges should exhibit activism where appropriate. Oh, at the top, at the very top of things. They have to be at the very top of things. And fortunately, one of the items which I just mentioned as an item of basic structure is judicial independence. And that has been pronounced upon also, which is fortunate. And therefore, we have now a structure in the Constitution where the last interpreters, the final interpreters of the Constitution are the judges and no one else. So that whatever law that is passed must fit into this little thing about not being contrary to the basic structure of the Constitution. As to what constitutes the basic structure has never been laid down. And that's been one of the complaints. And that is exactly why Chief Justice Ray, who was in a minority at that time of judges, he was amongst the six and not the seven. After a couple of years, he said that since this is unclear, let us have a rehearing of this, at which the then judges, there were different judges, of course, because the others had retired. Then judges, all of them were of the view that the majority judgment is the correct view, which was a great thing. And that judgment is a one which is not at all reported because Chief Justice Ray, who constituted this bench, then dissolved the bench after a two-day hearing at which Palkiwala excelled. Mr. Khanna, Justice Khanna writes in his autobiography that I have never heard an advocacy of such magnificence as Mr. Palkiwala's argument in that one and a half days when without a record, without, there's no record of it except in Mr. Sirway's book on constitutional law, there's just one little paragraph that deals with it. So that's what I keep telling all the young people today, that you won't find a mention of this, but this is what saved the constitution. Because ultimately it could have been just waste paper, like in constitutions mm. that keep coming and going. Wow. Well, that's incredibly powerful recollection of that. And I think one of the other things which is fascinating. Over the years, you've been instrumental in many areas of law, litigation and arbitration. And I just wonder, when did you first become involved in the world of arbitration? Well, it just, just happened to me in years and years. Babsi and I, my wife and I went to, we were invited actually. I was chairing a session of the International Conference of Commercial Arbitration in Mexico in 1978. And it was a, one of those magnificent conferences and hilarious because the conference took place in a distillery and, <laughs> and, and they only served brandy and coke. <laughs> so most of the famous arbitrators of our time in those days were drunk and they when the band played up, they'd all stood on the table, they removed all the plates, and they all danced on the table. I still remember oh. that on an afternoon oh, wow. in Mexico in 1978. And that was my first visitation of so many important people, men and women, that interested and active in arbitration. Fantastic. 
with Peter Sanders. Peter Sanders was there. We was father of the New York Convention. Yes, and did you dance on those tables? <laughs> no, I didn't. I'm a very poor dancer. My <laughs> wife is a very good one, but she was very good, but I was not. <laughs> but it was great fun. It was great fun seeing everybody a little high and great fun. And it was yeah. an afternoon, warm afternoon with cold Coke and <laughs> brandy. That's some combination, I've got to tell you. So, you know, that over the years, from that introduction in Mexico to the world of international arbitration, you've obviously been involved in a great deal in the world of arbitration. Yes, of course, after that came to appointed a vice president of the ICC court in Paris. And that was a continuous period from about 1979 to 2005. I gained a lot of experience, saw a lot of arbitration at a very high level, which was with the ICC court. Yes, and, and indeed, that's how I first came across your name. Because when I first began practicing 30 years ago, I remember seeing your name. And the first thing that sort of really sort of took me back is, and this is when I was a much younger man, so do forgive me for saying this, <laughs> I hadn't realized that someone from India could achieve, at that time, 30 years ago, such a prominent role within the ICC. And it such grabbed my attention and just made me want to find out more about you. And it was at that time that I first sort of then began looking you up. And I was thinking, who is this Mr. Nariman? And then, you know, now we sit here 30 years later and I have the ability to embarrass myself to tell you about that story. But, you know, Gautam, this is a, exactly, it reminds me, because my memory is also quite faded now, but it reminds me very vividly of what happened in Paris when the ICC Court of International Arbitration had their 60th anniversary, 60th anniversary, Diamond Jubilee. And that was absolutely outstanding performance, brilliant. And there it is that I saw another total opponent of international arbitration at the time. And the proponent was Judge Howard Holtzman. I don't know if you knew him. He was a member of the uh, Iran-US claimed uh, tribunal and also a great American lawyer. And the one who was opposed to international arbitration was Keba Mabe. Keba Mabe was at that time the Chief Justice of Senegal from Africa. Yeah. He was later a judge of the International Court and a president of the International Court of Justice as well. And the two of them, I still remember this because the, the Howard Holtzman thought that he was expressing something very acceptable, that it was a widely accepted view that the idea of judge and arbitrator are partners in a system of international justice. And Kebaba again who was then president of the Supreme Court of Senegal, refuted him. He said, nonsense. The notion that there is a system of international justice will not be shared by some countries, notably those in Africa, Asia and Latin America, who still see arbitration as a foreign judicial institution imposed upon them. Very, very strong. That's very strong. Very strong. But of course, he was a jurist. So he was a jurist with a vision. And he expressed the hope that international arbitration one day would gradually get accepted, which has now taken place. You see, that's what I'm very happy to see. It has. Yeah. 
third world acceptance and third world confidence. The only where only point where third world confidence in arbitration has not yet taken place is in investment arbitration, international investment arbitration. Because you remember that there has been so many critics from the first world as well, and these criticisms are all documented. But I mean, this is one of the striking features which I have always thought of as to how much we have progressed in international arbitration. Yeah, and you know, it's so true, and it's interesting. You know, as you were just mentioning, what some people thought back then about how arbitration wouldn't get off in、uh, certain parts of the world, it certainly has. Especially on the commercial arbitration side, as you said, and in now international arbitration, as you know, is the most Preferred dispute resolution mechanism for international business, and just wonder. Tell me and tell us about how you've seen the evolution of arbitration in India. Obviously, now it's a very different thing to what it has been in the past. Yeah, I'll just share you in a nutshell. Yeah, actually, I've written two books on it. I'll I'll send you the two books also. But、uh, let me tell you in a nutshell. You see, we were our very first arbitration. It was in British India. That we followed the British pattern, so we adopted the 1899 Arbitration Act way back years ago, and、mm-hmm. we had an Act of 1899, and then we had an Act of 1940, the Indian Arbitration Act, it was called. That was British India, which permitted、uh, parties to challenge awards on the ground of error of law apparent on the face of the record,、mm-hmm. which was a British British concept. And which was throwback onto、mm-hmm. the English Arbitration Act of 1933. But then there were two enactments where they England got rid of all that, totally got rid of it. But we unfortunately carried on with our 1940 Act right until 1996, where we got our present law. And even that law, unfortunately, is still in the making, as it were. Because、uh, there have been so many amendments to it, and I'm very, I'm very up- upset with it, really, quite frankly. But that, that's another story. And the the important thing is that we still in India we haven't got into the spirit of international arbitration, which I think is far more important than a law of international arbitration. Even amongst the judges, of course, that spirit is slowly coming, but very slowly, not yet pronounced.、Mm-hmm. For instance, I mean, we've had、uh, the PCA, the Permanent Court of Arbitration, where we have signed a treaty, country agreement. It is cross-country agreement, like Singapore has and Mauritius have, and so on. But but that requires that we provide the PCA with a some infrastructure within the country, which we haven't yet provided. Whereas Singapore and Mauritius have, and、uh, they are much better off because they have been. Having their,、uh, they are doing extremely well now in international arbitration, and unfortunately, we have we have not been able to do that. That's where there has been some error. But at any rate, fortunately, we we followed the model law, the UNCITRAL model law,、yeah. which most nations followed, and that certainly has helped. And most of our sections reflect that model law. And of course, we have been around the original signatories. To the New York Convention, 1958, we, that has been incorporated into our statute as well. But unfortunately, we、uh, the opinion here is that we should have had two separate enactments: one for domestic arbitration, 
the other for international arbitration. Mixing the two up has created a lot of trouble for us, which we overcome over the years, but just over the years. Yeah, no, I think, you know, as as you say, things have moved a lot. And I just wonder, in the last few years, I mean, we've now just had the fifth anniversary for international arbitration. They are doing very well. And it started by a friend of mine from Singapore. He initiated it and he's done, he's done extraordinarily well. Yeah. What do you think we all can do to improve the future of institutional arbitration in India? Well, one thing that we must, I think... Since we have already entered into agreements with the PCA and they have a lot of arbitration going, the Permanent Court of Arbitration at The Hague, that if we give them the infrastructure here in India, that will be the first step. But that's only a first step. So far as institutional arbitration is concerned, the law is there. We have a law, but Mm. we haven't brought it into force because laws here... When they are enacted, they don't necessarily come into force. You have to bring them into force. And that's a matter of discretion for the executive. Yes. And the executive, it was a well-thought-out law because we were going to have an arbitration council and we were going to have all sorts of very nice things which are there in the law. But unfortunately, we haven't yet seen, that hasn't seen the light of day. Let's hope at some point of time. Arbitration is a very low priority in India, very low priority. We are still in the court mode that everything has to be done in court virtually. Yes. <laughs> no, I know. And as someone once joked to me, uh, there's a feeling of judgeitis in India. Judgeitis, correct. Absolutely. You know, I, I want to turn to a, a slightly different topic, but which is one that I know that is one of the many things which you thought about and you think about. And I'll just introduce it in this way. One of the big things that's happened over the last several years is there's been a real focus on diversity, equality and inclusion in the law, in society, in arbitration, in all walks of life. In rereading your autobiography before this podcast, I found at page 442 of your autobiography, I'll just read a couple of sentences. My greatest regret in a long, happy, interesting life is the intolerance that has crept into our society. And then on the next page at uh, 443, you talk about diversity being tremendous and being important to bring people together. And now in reading that, it really sort of focused me on the fact that we really do need more diversity, equality and inclusion in what we do. And I'd just be interested in your thoughts about what those concepts mean to you from the perspective of the law. It's very important, particularly because in India, we have not merely the majority community, which is the Hindus, but we have a large number of minorities. They are constitutionally protected. There is no doubt about it. And they are protected also by the courts in in various decisions. But, but, and this is a big but, the politically, the diversity factor of ours hasn't gone down too well with the majority community. Large numbers are still, of course, wedded to the constitution and they are most keen that it should be that all the aspects of the constitution should be respected. But there are, because ours is a very 
diverse set of communities, diverse objects, diverse aims. Therefore, it becomes a little difficult to administer. I mean, it's a difficult country to govern. There's no doubt about it. Whichever the party in power has been, it has been extraordinarily difficult. But striving to see whether we cannot continue with a democracy that we have established. Mm -hmm. And that too, a participatory democracy, which is extraordinarily important. I don't know how long it will last, but I hope it will last for a long, long time. Feedback that one gets when one looks at all the countries in the world is that more and more countries today are getting autocratic rather than democratic and are shedding their democracies. Now, I hope that doesn't affect us. And so long as our constitution is upheld and remains, there should be no problem. Thank you. And I want to round out this great conversation with you, which, I mean, I could honestly talk to you for hours, but unfortunately we can't talk for hours. But uh, I just wanted to end with a couple of things, just to sort of on a more sort of lighthearted note. One of the things that I also... No, but you, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I thought I'd, I'd just tell you, this oh, is what a very, no, a very senior lawyer when I was a junior in the Bombay High Court once told the judge, because... When I argued a very heavy company matter before him, the senior who was a former attorney general of India, he got up and he started coughing once and he mm -hmm. coughed again. He cleared his throat again. So the judge was, said, Mr. Daftari, please sit down and have a sip of water. So he said, no, no, my lord. It's nothing to do with that. It's just my learned friend's arguments that I can't swallow. <laughs> You know, the art of advocacy, as they say. Well, since you say it so eloquently, I'm going to read back to you some words in your autobiography. You said, and this is, um, I found this very enchanting. You said, at this ripe old age, besides family and staff, what sustains me are two things. First and frankly, the possibility and the thrill, even now, of winning a difficult case. But the race is over, but the work is never done while the power to work remains. And then you said, and second, the affection of all my colleagues at the bar, young and old, whose company I greatly value and enjoy, so much so, and then you talk about how you were given a chamber at the Supreme Court, but you didn't want to have it because you got bored of sitting there and you'd rather be sitting in court. Now, what comes out of that is, despite the incredible career you've had, despite everything you've achieved, despite all the incredible admiration you have, you just love doing what you do. So what is it about still practicing and still advising that gives you that buzz? Well, I think that's the only thing that keeps me going at 92. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, I think that's a, I mean, that's a lot of fuel because, I mean, you are still incredibly active. Yeah, but somewhat, somewhat weak in the head at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Unlike my son, who is who's outstanding, who's got a very, very, very keen mind. Well, absolutely. You know, I still remember when I last saw you in um, February in Delhi last year. 
and of course, uh, the son that you mentioned is Justice Rohinta Nariman, who has recently stepped down from the Supreme Court of India and who had a huge uh, influence on the law of arbitration while he was sitting as a judge. I gave many landmark decisions in, in international arbitration. You know, one question before I ask you my final question, my penultimate question is, did the life of a judge ever interest you at one time? No, I was offered judgeships both in Bombay as well as in Delhi directly. Unfortunately, at the first time, I I had to support a grandmother and so on. So it just wasn't. And at that time, the remuneration of judges was very low. And the second time, of course, I was getting on. So I thought that I'm the cat's whiskers. <laughs> but my, my son, to his credit, had a different viewpoint, which was very correct. He was doing outstandingly well. He was the Solicitor General for a while, then he resigned and then was in practice he was at the top of the profession. And then when he won the one fine day, he came to his mother and father and told them that uh, I've just been asked by the Chief Justice to step up back with them, uh, become a judge. Mm. And I want to take it because I want to do some good. Yeah, well, he, he certainly did. And well, hopefully now that he stepped down from being a Supreme Court judge. He and he's not going to do my arbitration either. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he said, yeah, because no, no, because he's uh, he's writing books and things. He's already written a two volume book, uh, which is just uh, published uh, on uh, dissenting judgments on the world. Wow. Yeah, it's quite, quite very interesting. Yeah. Well, I look forward to reading that. Okay, now these are my last questions and what we're going to do because time unfortunately has caught up with us. It's been such an incredible discussion with you. I wanted to ask you, you know, three quick fire questions, totally non-law related. What has been or is your favorite holiday destination? Well, no holiday at the moment because I don't move out of my home, <laughs> quite frankly. No, really, I, I, I find it very difficult to move out now. Because of yeah. course I go for a walk only in my garden and, and that, that's about all. So that, that's the first question. Well, in that case, I'll take the podcast host's privilege and say, I think it must have been Mexico when you did that conference in that distillery. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You're right. You're right. Good observation. The second quickfire one is, there are a particular sort of music or, or singer or composer that particularly excites you? Absolutely. We love Western classical music. Parsi is mostly yeah, a Western classical music fan. Yeah. Um, although Indian classical music has pro- progressed tremendously since since independence, but uh, somehow we have, we have not taken to it. But uh, Therefore, I, I listen to a lot of it. And uh, my son, for instance, has about the best collection that you can find in India, perhaps of Western classical music, because he's a great fan of Western classical music. Fantastic. Uh, things like Mahler's Third Symphony, which is about the most outstanding piece of music that one could hear, is one of his favorites, is one of mine as well. Wow. Well, it's a family favorite. And then my last one, have you got a favorite film of all time? Ah, favorite film of all time. I don't know. Those men in their magnificent machine. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's been great fun and a great honor and privilege is for me to have had this discussion with you. I feel really blessed and honored because you're just such a huge inspiration to me and to so many, many other people. I feel so happy that although I can't see you in person, 
I will see you again in person, I'm sure, in early 2022. And thank you very, very much, Mr. Nariman, for your time, your humor, your thoughts, your insights, and just being you, because you truly are, and I'll just end as I began, you truly are a great lawyer, a great human being, and a great Indian. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Joseas de Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reed Smith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.